Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Stolen Goodbyes podcast with me, Karen Rice. This is being recorded remotely due to the COVID-19 restrictions. Today I'm joined by Pamela Addison from New Jersey in the States, who lost her husband Martin to COVID-19 on the 29th of April. He left behind two children, a two-year-old daughter, Elsie, and a five-month-old son, Graham. He was 44 years old. Welcome, Pamela. Hello. I'd like to ask you first what Martin was like as a person and also as a father. He was the most like passionate, compassionate person. He always would go out of his way for people and he would always make me feel special. Like he would do little things, he would do bigger things. So he would always have like a plan, like to like make me happy and you know give me a little surprise so it was always so like it just made me feel so special and so loved like he always made me feel loved no matter what and he was just always like what I miss is like I would always ask him for his advice you know like about things and he would always just like be so reassuring and like talk to me about it and I would just like know that I was making the right decision or I would wait on a decision because of him so he was just like that person that I would go to. And he was just the the best daddy there could ever be. Like he just loved his kids so much. He was so silly with them. He would always make them laugh. And my daughter would always just like wait by the door for him to get home from work. And the minute he got home, he would like lift her up and like fly her across the room. And it was just like all the giggles, like they would just always giggle with him. And even my, you know, little boy, who didn't really get a lot of time with um, Martin, he, you know, he started that laughing stage. So just Martin just like, knew how to make him laugh. It sounds brilliant. Yeah. And tell me, um, you mentioned that he was a romantic. Yes. Can you think of any examples of, of his romanticism? So I love lighthouses. And for our upcoming anniversary, he had planned this like elaborate plan for us to go to a lighthouse in New York, not too far, but for the weekend to like celebrate us. And I didn't know about it until after he died because he only told his mom because she had to babysit the two kids. So originally we were supposed to go the year before, but I was pregnant and I was about to have Graham. So I didn't even know that he had planned that. So just like, it was like an amazing surprise. And I'm sure we would have had a wonderful weekend. So Martin was actually born in Bath in the UK and moved to the States when he was eight. How did you two meet? So there was an app, a dating app called How About We? So the basis of the app was that you would post an idea for a date And if you were interested in that date, you would like press like intrigued. So I had a date posted, like, how about we go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and then grab a drink after. So he pressed intrigued. And then I said, oh, we should check it out sometime. 
So we met on the steps of the Met. And because the app didn't really, um, you didn't really have communication. You just plan the date. The, your first meeting, it was like you were talking instead of like typing everything. So you already knew about someone. We were like learning about each other. So we actually, I had changed the date. Like when I was heading to the Met, I was like, could we watch it walk in Central Park instead? Because it's so pretty out. I don't want to be inside. And so that's where we actually, we met on the steps of the Met, but then we walked in Central Park. How many years ago was that? Um, It was seven years yesterday. Wow. Can you think of a very special quality, one thing that really stands out for you that you really miss? I just, like, he would always, like, text me when he got to work and, like, tell me he loved me. So I feel like, like, that kind of is what I miss the most. Like, I don't get texts anymore. Yeah, that's something that you miss on a daily basis. Yeah. And then he would bring our daughter to daycare. So he always snapped me a picture of him dropping her off. So it's like those two little things because he just was so loving. That's what it is. He just loved me so much. Can you think of the highlights of your relationship? Looking back over the seven years, obviously your children. Yeah. And I, I guess like, like, in learning about each other. So like he made me like a big Liverpool fan. So, you know, cause that was like one of his real passions. So we like, you know, we really were sports related people. So like I introduced him to like my favorite college basketball team. He introduced me to Liverpool. So we just like had so much fun, like doing each other's like experiences. So I think that was like a highlight, like, you know, I think about going to a Yukon Huskies game now and I'm like, it's not going to be the same cause he's not here. And he made it so fun. Yeah. Um, so that was like one highlight. And, you know, just like our um, honeymoon to like, we went to Nashville, Tennessee, because we both love country music. So like, that was a highlight because we just enjoyed it so much. You mentioned that Martin was a speech and language pathologist. who's a healthcare worker. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. And then how he he fell ill. So um, he was like, he worked with people with dysphagia, which is people who have difficulty swallowing. So he worked at the hospital and he was just like such a passionate speech pathologist. Like he really cared about patient care and like making those connections with families because usually the patients he saw were, were, you know, on their way to, you know, they're on their way out kind of like that death situations and he had to like communicate that to the family or you know having telling people that you know their family member isn't safe to eat and they have to be on a liquid diet so he was really very compassionate about you know those situations and he also was a huge mentor to a lot of upcoming speech pathologists. So he would get a student every um, spring and sometimes in the fall. And all of them have reached out and just said like how much they learned from him and how they really just are the speech pathologists they are today because of him. And it really is, they always say about his amazing connection with patients and their families. So um, obviously when you're working with people, you do swallow evaluations. So you're like in people's face. So um, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, he was seeing patients and, you know, I feel like 
there wasn't really, we, the whole world was not prepared for this. So I feel a lot of hospitals were not prepared and he probably didn't have the right gear to be doing those evaluations. Was he concerned about that? Were you concerned about that? He was. I, of course I was because um, I'm also a type 1 diabetic. So I knew that I'm on the higher risk of getting seriously ill. And he, you know, he was nervous about that too, because he didn't want me to get sick. But yes, he did come home and mention how it was very like stressful about not knowing because, you know, because people didn't know what to do. So he was, you know, a little concerned. So I guess like um, a few days before he started to feel symptoms, he was in contact with a possible COVID patient. And that was like, obviously a little bit worrisome. So I think he saw that patient twice, like on, I think a Thursday and a Friday. And then Saturday, it was my daughter's birthday and we celebrated her birthday. And then Sunday, he started to have like a little cough, but like, he just was like, Oh, it's a cough. But he did want to get tested just to be, you know, cause he was so like concerned about people. He wanted to make sure he wouldn't get anyone sick. So he wanted to, but that was the time when testing was very difficult because so many people were trying to get tested. Cause it was like, people were freaking out. So um, the place where he wanted to go had already closed because they were just at max capacity with tests. So he didn't, he couldn't get tested then. Not right away. So on Monday he called out from work, still had a cough, but like, he wasn't that concerned because, like, he's had coughs before, you know? And he was just like, oh, it's, it might just be, like, one of my little sinus infection-type coughs because he would get sinus infections, like, sometimes, like I do. So um, we weren't really worried until Wednesday when he started to have a fever. And then I think that Thursday he got tested finally. And then I think on Monday, the following Monday, it came back positive. And how was he feeling in the time before you got the positive result? So from Wednesday on, he really was, he was upstairs in bed most of the day, started like not feeling hungry, but like not just so tired. So he was like sleeping a lot and he would like, you know, text me, oh, can you leave at the door some water, some bread, you know? And then, you know, I would fill up water and then like the fever really started to bother him. So like he would ask for ice packs to put on his head to like feel cooler. So, and then every day I would ask him, do I need to call an ambulance? Can you breathe? Because that was the big thing in the beginning. Like if you can't breathe, you need to get to the hospital. So I would ask him every day. He's like, no, I can breathe. I'm fine. I'm fine. So then April 3rd, in the morning, I started to hear him like gasping for air. And um, I was on the phone with my mom in the morning because I usually would call my mom every morning. And I was like, mom, I think I need to call the 911. I, I think something's wrong. And I went to his door. I was like, Martin, can you breathe? And he couldn't really answer me because he was gasping so much. So I knew because he couldn't answer me. I had to call 911. And then they came. So you must have been very worried at that stage. Yeah. And then because, you know, it was the pandemic, um, I guess the, the police arrived first and they handed me the oxygen tank and told me how to put it on my husband's face because so they did didn't you, want to come into the house. What did so you say? I, put, I had a mask. I found a mask because he was like doing work in the bathroom. So I had one of his like masks from that. I put it on my face. I went in. 
I saw him lying there. And again, like I saw him like, <gasps> like, <gasps> like that. And um, I told him, I need to put this on your face because you're having trouble breathing. And I called 911 and you're going to get help. And I put the, the oxygen mask on his face. How did he look? Just so sick. And, I, you know, like, he, because he was being deprived oxygen, he was very confused. So he kind of like, gave me this look like he didn't really know who I was, which is hard because I'm like your wife. And, but he was like, so like deprived of oxygen at that point that he was just so confused. And how had you been communicating with him if he was isolating in the bedroom upstairs? So I would text him and then I would just stand by the door and ask him like how he was doing and everything. And also like sometimes he would like open the door and the way our steps are, like I could be six feet and he would just talk to me that way. Okay. Yeah. And did you feel that he was worried in the time, in that time? Yeah. I mean, he was doing everything he possibly could to like get better. You know, he was always like, Oh, why he, he like would text me a lot. Like, why is this so hard? And I'm like, you know, it's, it's a, I, I didn't know what it felt like. So I'm just like, well, you're really sick, you know, like you have this and it's like, but he could breathe. So I wasn't very worried because he could breathe. And that Thursday before I called 911, he had a telemedicine appointment and he was, I, I was listening in from the other side of the door and he sounded like himself and like, you know, was answering all the questions that the doctor was asking him and the doctor wasn't concerned because Martin, and then like within a few hours, he's like asking for air. So it happened quickly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was brewing, but it's the, the worst part of it came so quick. And take me from the time that you placed the oxygen mask on, on his face. What, what happened then? So then they, then that ambulance, the two ambulances came and then the paramedics came in and they went into the room. And I remember hearing the parent, cause I wasn't sure if I was like overreacting at first. Like, I'm like, Oh, maybe, maybe this is just part of the illness. But I heard one of the paramedics go, wow, the wife was right. That I knew that something was wrong. So that made me feel a little bit better. Cause I was like, I hope I'm not overreacting and calling 911 for no reason. Cause like you've taught that in in school only call when there's an emergency. So basically, you know, I had to sign all these papers uh, like virtually to make sure to give them permission to care for him. And then, um, I just went downstairs because, you know, my two kids were there and I waited for them to like wheel him out. So I just remember, you know, them bringing him down on the stretcher to our stairs and then him being at the front being loaded to the ambulance that's the last time I saw him that's incredibly hard and was he conscious then yes he was but just still confused did he realize he was going to hospital I mean I told him but I don't I don't really know what he knew at that point. I mean, like once he was settled in at the hospital, one of the doctor, one of his nurses called me and said he wasn't sure how he got to the hospital. So he didn't even remember the ambulance bringing him. He wasn't sure if he drove himself. And then he just wanted to make sure we were okay. So what happened then? So 
the first few days it was kind of like he was on like just he, he wasn't on a ventilator yet. So they just had him on that like BiPAP machine and he was doing well. They were saying like um, his oxygen levels were getting better. Although they told me that he had like the pneumonia that is associated with COVID, but he, his levels were getting better. He could eat and be on that machine. So that was like very positive. So I was getting all this positive feedback that he was like improving and then one of the nurses who I absolutely loved, it was, there was like some nurses that were just so amazing, called me and asked me if I could bring his phone. So I did that. So we could, so he, we would text a little bit. I just remember him telling me he was scared that he wanted to be home. And then Tuesday night, I got a phone call that said that they had to intubate him. So that was like April 7th. What did they have to do? Sorry. Um, put him on the ventilator to intubate him. Right. And I remember the doctor saying that it didn't look good and that basically his COVID was like causing his body to attack his own body. So it was like something they hadn't really seen before. In terms of COVID cases. Yes. Cause I remember asking like, ha- like, have you seen like, or have you had patients like this? And he was like, no, I haven't seen this yet. So just like Martin was like a patient that they hadn't seen yet. So like it just shows you that there's so much to figure out with COVID. No. And was Martin healthy? I mean, healthy for Yes, he was. So there was no underlying conditions. So how are you feeling at that point? I mean, that must have been incredibly hard. It was. I mean, like, I texted all my, like, church friends because, you know, to start the Hank prayer. And then my pastor was like, oh, I, you know what, it's okay. Like, don't worry. I There were a few people from church that were put on ventilators, and they were off within a couple of days. So it kind of, like, was like, okay, it's hopeful. But I remember, like, hearing on the news, like, the longer you're on it, the worse off you are kind of thing. So I always had that in the back of my mind. So the next day a doctor called me about giving him like those experimental drugs. So I gave them permission to give him remdesivir. And it seemed that within a couple of days, all stats started to get better again. And then um, they were thinking about on Friday that they would try to, of the next, so like within a week they were thinking, okay, we're going to try and get him off the ventilator. And then the day that they were going to do it, he got a bacterial infection and all his forward progress. He went back to where he started when he first was intubated. Oh dear. I feel like that after that, he just never could recover. Like they wanted to try to get him off. So then they gave him a two days before he died. They gave him a tracheotomy to try and help wean him off the, uh, ventilator but then that's like I was counting I was like okay but now it's been 20 days since he's been on the ventilator that's getting worse and worse yeah the 27th he had the surgery and then I remember the doctor saying that the surgery went well and then the next doctor called me and said that they were unsuccessful in trying to get him off and I was like oh well is that common and she goes no we were really expecting something else so then again I felt like okay that's not a good sign. And then like the next day, I guess it was just like status quo. And then 
the Wednesday that he died, like I talked to the physician assistant who had been taking such great care of Martin. And they were just, you know, saying that he needed to rest because he got another little bacterial infection. And then um, Martin's father also called the doctor around, I think five, um, my time. And, um, it was like, you know, like nothing concerning, like he texted me and it seemed like there was positive. And then two hours later he died. How shocking. Yeah. So I got the phone call that he went into cardiac arrest from the physician's assistant. And then I know what cardiac arrest is because my father passed away with cardiac arrest. So I just know that like one, like even if you come back from that, you're not fully yourself. So at that point I was like, he said, you know, they're still working on him. They're not giving up. But as each minute passed, I was like, even if he does survive, he's not going to be Martin. And then I got the call that he passed. So in all that, what time frame was that from the moment? I guess around 7 o'clock, I got the call that he went into cardiac arrest. And I think around 740, I got the call that he passed. And how long was he in hospital for? 26 days. 26. My word. And, I mean, did you have any support in that time? I mean, you were isolating with your children, I'm guessing. Yeah, so I we just FaceTime. Uh, I, I, so I FaceTime with him, and then my mom came the night he died. I mean, it must have been surreal for you. It must have yeah. Been. Can you put it into words? It was just, you know, it was just like an emotional roller coaster because, like, every day you would wake up and you wouldn't know what was happening. And, like, it, you know, like, the staff was wonderful, but sometimes it was really hard to get in contact with them because, you know, they were working on so many patients or, you know, busy. So that was like another thing. Like I was always like waiting for the next phone call, you know, like, or, you know, no news was good. Like no call was good news, but I had an instance where they didn't call me when something happened. So then I could no longer trust that you not calling me means that it's okay. So, um, it was just, it was just, you know, it was just like, I didn't feel like it was, it was, it was just like some like out of body experience. Like it just really was something from like the movies you would think. What about your children? What were you telling them? Well, Elsie knew that Papa was sick and had a cough and she knew that he went to the hospital to get better. So, um, that was what she knew at the time. And a few days later, I did tell her that, you know, Papa went to heaven and he can't, he's not going to come home. It's heartbreaking. And um, Graham, um, sorry, obviously Graham's uh, still very small. So he didn't um, really know what was going on. Yeah. And Martin's family, are they in the States? So his mom is in the States in, in New York. And his father and stepmother and half-siblings and stepbrother are all in England in different parts. Yeah. So, I mean, that must have been incredibly hard and surreal for them as well. Yeah. Because especially for the father who had called like two hours before and got like a report that made him feel 
like hopeful. I guess um, because I didn't call him to let him know his um, Martin's mom called the dad. I think his response was, but what, how? Like, but because I just talked to the doctor. He was okay. So it was just like shocking. What happened after that? Um, Obviously, you know, you got the news that he passed. Were you able to have a funeral? What what happened? So I, I just chose to wait for a memorial because like I said, he, I didn't know how much impact Martin had on people's lives, but he really did. So I felt I would want, a celebration of his life at a later time where everyone who loved him could come. So that's what I chose. I felt like just having like a small little funeral, like it would really, because his family's in England and can't come over, it would just really have been like, you know, me, my sister, (laughs) her husband, my mom and his mom. I just felt like that wasn't what I wanted to do. That will be some, some point in the future. Yeah, when restrictions are a little bit less. But he was all about life, so I'd rather celebrate his life. How do you feel about the fact that you weren't able to say goodbye? That's tough. So, I mean, I did have, like, some FaceTime calls. And on the 27th, a nurse who um, knows someone at my daughter's daycare um, went into Martin's room and held his hand for me. And I talked to him while she held his hand. So even though I didn't like have like the goodbye, I did have like that, that conversation. So that was like pretty amazing because I guess at one point he did squeeze her hand, even though he was so heavily sedated. So she told me that he squeezed her hands when I said something about love. I love you. So that knowing that kind of gives me some closure, but I mean, the fact that I didn't see him for so long, that his entire hospital say I couldn't go and be with him was very difficult. So he could hear you, obviously. Yeah. yeah. He could hear your words. So that's, that must be a comfort. Yeah. And now these months later is there anything that keeps you awake at night it's more like how my kids aren't gonna really know him that's what takes up your thoughts yeah it's like I feel like a lot of my sadness as I I mean I love him I miss him a lot of it is because I I cry for them because they're not gonna they're not gonna have their dad doing all the things that he wanted to do with them yeah. it's tough she talks about her birthday every single day because that's like her memory of him that was the last thing she did with him before he got sick so she literally will sing happy birthday you know say happy birthday Elsie talk about how we put hats on our head how she made a cake because we made a cake with her and she talks about it every day so that's a hugely a huge connection, a strong such a strong memory for her. And did Martin talk about the things that he wanted for his children in the future? Are there any things that you ever discussed that you know you'd really like to see come to pass or 
or perhaps you didn't really go into that. Imagine, I mean, you know? just like, you know, like we, we would talk about how one day they're going to play sports, you know, and be there to like cheer them on, you know, just as simple as like playing catch in the backyard. So it's like things that like I am going to do with them, but he will always be missing from that. And that's really hard. And that's what I think about a lot. All the things that he never got to do with them because his life was taken. What emotions are you left feeling now? I mean, I'm sometimes I'm angry about the whole situation. And like, I sometimes ask like, why Martin? Like, why did he have to get sick? Why did he have to go into that patient's room? You know, um, cause he, he was part of a team. Why did he get assigned that patient? You know, I think about those type of things. And you just, it's like, you know, it's like a piece of me is missing now. And if you could go back and change one thing, what would it be? So, you know, the day that he was taken from the ambulance to the, to the hospital, I didn't think that was going to be the last time I saw him. So I wish I had like kissed him or hugged him on the forehead or like kissed him on the forehead or hugged him, told him I loved him like personally because I, but I didn't know that that was the last time I was going to see him. Obviously you're in the States. How do you feel about the way the government, Donald Trump's government has handled the pandemic? I just think, don't think that it was, we were just not prepared. We, you know, with, we had warnings and it was happening in other countries and we should have prepared ourselves and we didn't. What would you like to see happen with regard to the pandemic and from the government now? I mean, I honestly feel like a lot of families have been hit hard from this pandemic. They People have lost people. Like, I've lost my husband. So I feel like families should have, like, some sort of, like, monetary, like, help because it is a financial strain now that I'm a single mom to two kids. And that, that, that's another thing that's, like, stressful. And, like, I think about quite often is, you know. Is there any support? Is there any financial support for people who've lost I mean, there's one one company that's doing grants, but I feel like the government needs to step in a little bit more, especially for people like with young families. Like, you know, I'm there's several people that have reached out to me who have lost their husbands and have young children like me, and we've lost half of our income, you know? So that's a worry for you? Yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And if there's one thing that, a message that you want to share with the world about what you've been through in terms of losing your husband and losing him to COVID, what would it be? Basically that COVID really is real and it really has affected so many people and so many families and that, you know, Tomorrow is not promised, so just make sure you always tell your loved ones that you love them. That's um, a very true, very true message. So, Pamela, thank you so much. Um, You're extremely brave and um, an inspirational mother, I've no doubt. 
Thank you for sharing the story and please stay strong. Thank you. Thank you.